Hey everyone, welcome to episode six of the Why I Believe podcast. Today we have our very own Nate Long. Um, he's going to tell his story and we're kind of just going to have him introduce himself a little bit before we get into it. And episode six, we're already a ways in, babe. Yeah. Already ways in. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't planning to introduce myself. I guess I should. So I'm Nate. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know what to say. I'm 31. Have three kids. If you didn't already know from Carly, we have three wonderful children, um, all under the age of five. Um, I work in commercial lighting, graduated from USU several years ago, always wanted to be an entrepreneur and got an opportunity to ground floor of this company, which was awesome because I get to kind of play entrepreneur, but I still have, uh, you know, a salary and those things to make sure that I can fight for the family. So, uh, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I love music, played music, been a musician my whole life, love to hunt fish. I mean, I have a lot of different hobbies but uh that's me yeah so basically i know everything about him so i can say with a confidence that he has a pretty intense story and a really um powerful testimony of god and our savior jesus christ so i'm just gonna kind of let him take the lead here and i'll ask him questions as we go through but i think you guys will be really surprised and also inspired by Nate's story and the things that he's been through and how he's overcome it. Just take it away, babe. Yeah. So I mean, I have to, before I jump into my story, I have to say like the whole basis of wanting to do this podcast was me and Carly constantly looking at how hard the world has gotten. And we've seen a lot of friends leaving the church, leaving God. We've seen a lot of people struggling and, you know, people who, are near and dear to our hearts it's hard to see them struggling and going through things and you know it kind of made me think about why choose to believe because everything is a choice and as we kind of get into my story you know we'll talk about a lot of things that i've learned through my journey and yeah life is about choices it's about the choices we make and how we choose to think about things and it all affects every single thing that we do and so why do people choose to believe in Christ? Why do people choose to follow him? And I just felt so inspired of me to do something. And I have to express my gratitude to Carly because I don't always get a chance to do that on these. But, you know, I shared this idea with her probably at least six months ago or more and kind of brought it up several times after that and just didn't have the, the gumption or the time to really get it going. And she finally said, we're doing it. We're getting a guest. We're going to hit record and see what happens. And, um, it's just been really an awesome blessing to have the spirit in our home and in our lives and to do this. So anyhow, with that being said, <clears throat> I will jump into my story without further ado. So I'll kind of jump around. I'll try to be linear, but you know, Carly, if I get off the rails, just stop me and ask a okay. question. So good. Um, my story really starts when I was a kid. I mean, so I, as a young man, I grew up, I have one older sister and three younger brothers um, so a lot of siblings, you know, there's five, five of those kids total. You know, my parents did not have a lot when we were young. We never would have known that, but I mean, they were poor, 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 totally broke. Um, my dad was starting as a school teacher. My mom was a stay at home mom. And um, we're living in Southern California because that's where my family was, my dad's side of the family. And that's where he could get a job. 
So I was actually born here in St. George, where we are now. Kind of crazy, but I mean, we moved when I was a baby. I have absolutely no memories of St. George at all. Um, moved to Southern California. That's where I remember growing up till I was a teenager. And, you know, California was always an expensive market. So again, you know, my parents didn't have a lot, but we wouldn't know. We had amazing childhood, had everything we could have hoped for. I mean, I had three younger brothers. And so we were just the best of friends, always getting into trouble. I had two cousins down the street, um, one that was about a year older than me. And then one that was about three years older that were just my best friends. And I would go down and play with them. I mean, just it was an awesome childhood, you know, and it was the nineties, which was a simpler, better time, you know? <laughs> so, um, it was, it was great. But at the same time as a kid, I immediately at a pretty young age was aware of the expectations that were put on me by the world and things around me. My dad was called as a Bishop when he was 29. Uh, he was my principal at school once I was in third grade because he was, he was done being a teacher he had been a teacher, then a vice principal, and then he moved to another school in town and became the principal. And that's when I got into third grade. And so I'm literally like a third grader, fourth grader. My dad is my school principal and my bishop. And like everybody knows everything about me and they know I'm the principal's kid and the bishop's kid. And I absolutely can do no evil because they will find out. <laughs> they will tell him. So, you know, it was awesome in a way because... I feel like I got to have a lot of experiences I wouldn't have gotten to have. Um, you know, when I was in elementary school, I'd run to my dad's office and steal chocolate from his bowl and all the secretaries knew me. And like, it was fun. But at the same time, it's just a lot of expectation. Like people expect you to be something. Um, they expect you to be obedient. They expect you to be more just better than other kids, you know? And so there's a lot of that. And especially being the oldest son as well. I had my older sister, but then I had three younger brothers. And so I'm the oldest son. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on me to be an example. And so I was aware of that at a pretty young age. And I can honestly genuinely say in my heart, I always, always, always have been a good person and wanted to please people and wanted to do the right thing genuinely. And so that was great as a kid. Like I, you know, I was a normal kid. I got into trouble, got into mischief, but like in general, I was a pretty good kid. You know, I didn't have to try that hard in school and I get straight A's and I, it was, it was the basic childhood stuff was pretty easy for me. You know, there were some things that looking back now were probably telling of some of the things I would struggle with as a kid. You know, I got really into video games, which was not a bad thing necessarily. I actually think it helped my brain develop in a lot of ways, helped me get very smart, uh, helped me think quickly. But it also became a way to buffer. Like I would spend all day at school thinking about what I was going to do when I was going to get home. I wasn't very present at school. Like I just wanted to get home and go play video games, wanted to get home and go play outside. Like, and I think every kid's that way to an extent. You know, I don't think that's unique, but I look at that now and I, I use the term buffer. If you're, if you're not familiar with that term, um, it's a term I, I learned from Zach Spafford, who is a coach. Um, a life coach, and he deals with all kinds of cool stuff. I'll talk more about him in the episode, but this term buffer is like it's anything you use to kind of kind of get away from the emotion of something, you know? Like I used to buffer by grabbing a soda on my way into work. But like as a kid, I would buffer the school day by thinking about what I was going to do when I get home. You know, <laughs> like I got good to fidget or whatever, and I could not wait 
to get home. So that was kind of like childhood, um, early childhood, like not, not a whole lot of issues. I mean, it was, it was pretty good. Um, my, my deeper journey, you know, and, and I will say this, even as a kid, like I loved the church, like I loved Christ because my dad was a bishop, especially like everyone in the church knew me. I loved going to church. You know, I was like a little celebrity. They're like, oh, hey, Nate, hey, Nate, hey, Nate. You know, like everybody's shaking my hand, high-fiving me because they all knew my dad. That was like my childhood. Is everybody knows my dad, so they all know me. And we all look really alike if you've ever met us. So, it's you know. True. You can spot a lot pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, people see me and they ha- they'll they be like, oh, are you Dave's son? I'm like, yes, I'm along because <laughs> of just strong genetics. So, you know, I love church as a kid too. That wasn't necessarily an issue for me, but um you know, my journey started when I was about 12. It was the first time I was introduced to pornography. I was at my cousin's house and they were getting into some stuff. And one of the issues I had when I was a kid is I always wanted to be cool. Like I always, and I think again, every kid can be that way, but like I, they'd be like, Oh, have you seen that movie? I'd be like, Oh yeah, I've seen that, you know, cause I wanted to sound cool. I wanted to be, and I really had trouble, especially because one of my cousins I hung out with all the time were both older than me. And one was three years older. And so you know, we never felt cool. Like when you're hanging out with the older kids, like you're the trash, man, you're the dirt, <laughs> like you are not cool. And so, you know, I feel like I really tried to become things for people. So they would see me as being cool. And that's not necessarily who I wanted to be. And so I was introduced to pornography from them. And, you know, of course, that's a whole can of worms that got me down a path that I didn't need to be going down. This is still in the early days of the internet. Our parents have no idea how to properly block this stuff. And nor would they even think twice about whether we were getting into it. I mean, it wasn't even a passing thought, I don't think, for my mom. Um, For my dad, he was certainly where it was an issue because he was a bishop. I'm sure he was helping people who were dealing with this. But at the same time, this just wasn't something they were paying attention to close to home. And I don't say that to be any kind of heart of my parents. They did amazing and they are amazing. I have literally the best parents on the face of the earth, but nobody knew how to deal with this when my generation was kids. In fact, a lot of the church and the world still doesn't know how to deal with pornography, sex addiction, any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. We're just now starting to figure out how to properly deal with it. And it's the same as drugs were in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. You know, that now a lot of our parents' generation didn't have to struggle with because they figured out the generation before. It's the same way with pornography now. But this was very early on. So, you know, they didn't know how to deal with it. So I was able to find every backdoor known known to man imaginable to be able to find things. Um, and I would. Uh, but at the same time, it was I I really struggled because I'm this 12-year-old kid. I know what I'm doing is wrong. Like I've been ordained to the Aaronic priesthood. I'm starting to pass the sacrament. And like, so I start to deal with one of my favorite terms, Carly knows this huge cognitive dissonance. Like what I believe is right is not the way I'm acting or behaving. And it really like set me on a very hard path for me where I just, I was at war with myself for many, many years ongoing at war with myself. And I'd feel terrible and I'd repent and um, go back down the path. And it just was back and forth and back and forth. So I want to just stop you for a second. So pornography use, this is, you know, everybody looks at that differently, but in this situation, you don't want to look at porn. You, it's something I was morally opposed to. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're morally opposed to it went against your own value system. So this was unwanted pornography use. Yes. So, you know, if, 
if you're okay with looking at it, that's, that's you or whatever. But in this situation, Nate didn't feel right about it because it went against his personal value system. Yeah. You, you know, and then like everybody has their own beliefs and I get that, you know, people can believe what they want to believe. But at the end of the day for me, I'm like, God gave the law of chastity. He's given commandments. The scriptures are very clear. Yeah. And I knew better. Even as a 12 year old, I 100% knew better, knew that that was wrong and believed that was wrong. And you know, what added to that, like shame that surrounded this was the way that church leaders approached this at the time was absolute just like fear tactics. Because again, nobody knew how to deal with this. I love right. the church. I don't hate on any of it. But like we would go to like priest and session and general conference and it would be like pornography is the most vile of any sin. You know, it would just, you know. Like where you'd feel like the scum of the earth. Oh, like my word. Garbage. As somebody who is struggling, I was just like, let me just like crawl into a hole and die, you know, like, and especially as a kid who doesn't know how to process or deal with that. It was very hard. And I started building up a lot of shame. Um, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I was. I was not more than 12 or 13. Like I was pretty young. I had not gotten very far into it when that shame kind of ate me up. I remember specifically I skipped church one day and I had a habit of playing sick. Like I play sick all the time because if I didn't want to do something, if I don't want to go to school that day and my mom knew my game, but sometimes, you know, your mom, you don't want to do like whatever you could be sick. And remember they're like 29, 30. I mean, at this point they would have been late thirties. I mean, but she has five kids. My dad, yeah. you know, they have five kids. My dad's the bishop. My mom's taking them all to church. So, of course, I play sick. I want to stay home. And this was one of the first times, like, I had like premeditated, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look important. I'm gonna do stuff, and people are going, whatever. And I, you know, I, I did some things, but I remember so distinctly the spirit hitting me while I'm in the act of of doing what I'm doing, and just feeling wrong just feeling like i don't want to do this you know and it was so overwhelming like i hadn't really felt the spirit super strongly before that that i can remember like i definitely felt it at church and things you know but <clears throat> not like any distinct situations where i really remember and that was one where i just like man like something had just overcome me where i just i had no desire to look at that anymore i just felt ashamed i didn't want to be a part of that and you know I remember singing, I think it was like Army of Helaman or something through a few times until it just brought me to tears. Like I couldn't even sing through it anymore because I think in my soul, I just wanted to invite the spirit back. You know, like I, I think on some level I was where the spirit had left. Yeah. I couldn't be there because of what I was doing. And it just really hit me. And I was so terrified to tell my parents, just terrified. And so literally all I could manage to do is I wrote a note. And I left the note on the table because I knew they would get home from church and find it. And I literally went, put that on the table and I went to my room and took a nap because I didn't want to face them. I was so scared. And, and you have to understand when you have that much shame, like you build stuff up to be so much bigger than it is, you know? And it was scary, but I remember they got home, you know, of course I'm terrified, but they wake me up. I honestly, even to this day, I don't even know who found the note. Like it could have been one of my siblings. Like, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Like, I don't even know. But they got me up and my mom, I remember, was just in tears, distraught, you know, like, and this is true of, I think, almost any mom in this era and probably today still is like so surprised, like just 
completely caught her off guard because again this is not something they've dealt with right like my son my son's like doing my that no yeah. way, you know it just really caught off guard i remember to my dad to his credit was just like not even taking it back he's like all right get in the car we're going for a drive i'm like okay you know like, it's <laughs> just like he was so nonchalant like and i remember this day my dad praised me for coming to him he did not shame me he did not yell at me or get angry with me like that, the only conversation I remember from that car ride was, I'm so proud of you. Like the amount of strength you had to have to write that note, you know, shows the kind of man you are. Like that stuck with me through the years, you know, like, you know, he didn't, he didn't bother punishing me for the sin. And he knew that wasn't his job. Yeah. Uh, and I honestly, I think he represented the savior in that way. The savior isn't here to punish us. He doesn't care he's paid the price so you don't have to be punished, you know, and we, we just forget that. And so, you know, that was good for a minute. My dad um, got me to meet with the bishop at the time. Cause by this time I was 12, 13, a new bishop had been put in. Um, and um, I met with that bishop. It was fine. I mean, I met with a lot of bishops over the years, you know, and this bishop was as good as any, you know, he was, a, he was a very good man. He did his best to help me. But again, a lot of it at this point was just, the church didn't know how to deal with this. And so it was, it was like, you know, you get penalized. I don't remember this specific instance, but basically the approach at this point was like, well, you can't take the sacrament for a few weeks or you can't pass the sacrament or you have to be clean for this long before you can do this or, you know, and it just, there wasn't a lot of help. It was just like, a, okay, well don't do it where you can't do this. And that was kind of the the general feeling. And it was just like, Okay, but like as a young man, you know, I needed tools. Yeah, you needed tools. I, I needed to tools through. to know what to do. And I needed to understand why my brain wanted this so bad. I mean, pornography is a drug, <laughs> you know? And so right, it's, it, it's like, well, don't do it. Okay, like I'll try not to, you know, like it's so hard. Uh, thinking as a grown adult now, how would I possibly expect a teenager to know how to deal with that? Yeah. I can't even fathom, but that's because I went through it. Right. And so it's, I think it's, that's why our, our, the upcoming generation now will be able to help with that. And that's kind of how it went, you know, like for, for years on and off there, it was like this where I was just, I was good. I was bad. I was good. I was bad. I was back and forth. And it was just so hard. And I, I hated myself when I would make a mistake and I would get so down on myself and I would pull back from my family and kind of just want to be alone and I was being sneaky and sneaking around and doing stuff. And I just, I hated it. I hated who I was when I was doing that stuff. And I was affecting, I'm sure, every aspect of my life more than I even realized. Um, you know, seventh grade, I developed all these stomach issues. I was diagnosed with IBS, with irritable bowel. I had to drop out of school. Um, and I was homeschooled for the rest of that year. I mean, it just, there was all these things going on that probably were interrelated to this conflict within myself. Yeah. You know, and it, it was very, very hard on me at the time. Um, you know, my cousins were still doing this stuff. We're still best friends. We're still hanging out. That doesn't make it any easier. I remember at the point before we had moved, I had talked to the bishop again. And I don't know if that was the first time or the second time, but whatever it was, I talked to the bishop. And we were getting ready to move to Utah. And this was another time I'd had a spiritual impression. Like my dad was interviewing for a job. He sat down, had a little family council. 
told us he was interviewing for this job in Utah over the phone. So like, I probably won't get it. I just want to let the family know. And like, I literally instantly was like, yeah, we're moving. Like I just knew. And I had no doubt from that time forward. And it was probably, I don't know, four or five months before we moved, but like, I just knew. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we're moving. And we, you know, we had ended up moving. But before we moved, I talked to the bishop again. And I was at my cousin's house. And I remember they were pulling out for on free and doing stuff again. And I so badly did not want to be involved in that, that I left. And I just, I literally walked home. I was like, guys, I want to be involved in this. And there was kind of a, a divide between me and my cousins for a while because, you know, ultimately the way that went down was my parents told their parents that they had been involved. Their parents didn't believe me. We're like, our sons aren't doing that, which made me look worse. And then we moved. Yeah. And so it's like, I just didn't see them for a long time. And there was never really, I wouldn't say, excuse me, I wouldn't say there's beef between me and my cousins. Like we always loved each other. But at the same time, like it was kind of one of those friendships that had to die for a while because we were clearly wanting different things at the time. And that happens in life, you know, where it's like, if your friends are dragging you down or going down a different path, sometimes you can't follow. And that's kind of where I was at. It's like, I can't be part of the past. So the last few months before we moved, I didn't really hang out with them and they were my best friends. Um, I had some other really good friends. I had one best friend from school that I hung out with a ton as well. So we hung out more, but that was about it. And then we moved to Utah. I was 14, just barely turned 14 and, uh, you know, new school, new friends, new everything, you know, I mean, just, I honestly didn't mind the move. Like, honestly, like we really, really missed California for the first couple of years, but it wasn't the end of the world to me. Like it kind of was a closing of a chapter in a way, mm-hmm. you know, I was trying to deal with the pornography and stuff anyways. <laughs> and anyone who's ever dealt with pornography knows this or drugs or any kind of addiction or addictive behavior. You will tell yourself like, this is the last time I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. Never. And then without a doubt, you're going to prove yourself wrong. You'll do it again. And then your self-confidence takes a hit and your self-confidence takes a hit to the point where you have no confidence in anything that you said you were going to do. And that's a big part of this addictive behavior cycle that was so difficult. So even when we moved to Utah, I'm like, I'll never struggle in Utah. I'm like, that'll be the thing is I'll never struggle in moving to Utah and I'll be, I'll be good from here on out. And, you know, that probably lasted a few months. And then you mess up and you're down on yourself. And then that cycle, you're more ashamed. So you go back to it again. It just, and now it's a new bishop. I'm terrified again because I don't want to talk to another bishop. You know, I still am not, you know, I'm still very ashamed. I'm struggling with this, you know? So that went on for some time. I don't remember how many bishops I met with, how many different times. I assure you it was plenty because I was struggling with this throughout my childhood, you know, and I got into the new school in Utah. I went to Skyview. I met some awesome friends the first year there, you know, and it, it was interesting because everybody knew everybody, but of course I didn't because I was coming into 10th yeah. grade, which is start of high school. And um, I just landed in with, you know, some great friends who, you know, Spencer is one of my best friends to this day. You know, our lives have taken a lot of different paths, but I mean, one of the most loyal friends I could ever ask for, you know, if I ever needed him, he would be here and vice versa. And so I got lucky in that regard. Yeah. I landed with some genuinely good people that kind of became my friend group and my band. I played in a rock band in high school and, uh, you know, we hung out every day. All the time. I mean, it was all the time, get home from school, practice, shred the guitars for a couple hours, 
go around and run around, you know, traipse on the town, cause trouble, come back. You know I mean? It was just every day, every, every day. I mean, in high school, I was probably never home except for like at night. Like I just, I, there were times for sure, but like most days I was out with my friends. We were doing stuff. I was over at Spencer's house all the time. His parents probably saw me more than my parents did. Yeah. <laughs> and to their credit, they were great to let us come and hang out. Um, but I was still struggling through that whole time, you know, and some of my friends were struggling too. We didn't talk about it often, but there was times that, that those things came up and we discussed things and we, you know, and we were kind of trying to help each other through this path of cognitive dissonance and of wanting to be better men and wanting to do better things and then flip flop the complete other way, wanting to be worse men and wanting to do whatever we want to do. And like just the, the war of the two worlds and a teenage boy is it's unreal. It's so hard. It's so hard to deal with. And of course, genuinely in my heart, I still want to be that good person. Yeah. In my heart, I'm still a good person. I want to be a good person. I want to do the right thing. And that's where I struggle so much because every time I make a choice that goes against that, I know I'm going against what I believe every single time. And then that shame comes in and it's just, just a cycle over and over and over again. And that was again, just hard, hard to try and go through hard to navigate through Nobody knows how to help you. At some point in this, I just kind of got tired of church, you know, and this was like about the time I'm graduating high school. And I just, it's not that I didn't believe. I always had a testimony of the savior. I always knew he was real. I had so many different experiences that I absolutely like beyond the shadow of doubt, even as a teenager would not, could not ever deny that God is real, that Christ is real. And it's something I never doubted. I think I have that gift of faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. In my soul, I know he was, he is, He and he is the Savior. And I always knew that. But I just, I couldn't keep going to church and be this two-faced person. I, I just couldn't be there. And so I didn't want to go. And so after high school, I kind of just quit going. I don't feel like I decided one day. I just kind of stopped, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, when people were supposed to be going to singles ward and stuff, I was like, yeah, well, I'm just not going to go. And part of this too was all through my teenage years, I still was planning a certain mission. So in the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, which we're a part of, um, at this point you could go as a man at 19. And that was kind of my whole childhood. I think now it's 18, but, um, when I was a kid, it was 19. So I was like my whole life I'm planning on, and again, these timetables come into play. I knew, hey, I probably need to be clean for a year. I want to go. So literally as a kid, I was like, okay, well, I'll just do what I'm going to do. And I'll repent to 18. I'll have my year to repent. And then I can go on the mission. And like, this is the way I was thinking, you know, and it's not because I was a bad person or a terrible person. It's just because you thought you had time. To I thought it. I had time. And this was so hard to deal with. Plus, I'm a procrastinator. You know, it's like, I don't want to deal with this. So I'm a serial procrastinator. And, you know, it's just one of those things that your time goes by. You don't, you don't think time's going by. And so whatever it is you're struggling with, you know, you can choose to milk it for as long as you want, but eventually you will run out of time yeah. and you'll have to make a decision. And, you know, that happened for me. I got out of high school and, you know, everybody in the ward, our congregation was asking, you know, when you're going to serve, where are you going to go, when you put in your papers. And I honestly, my excuse for stopping going to church was that I was fed up with the questions. 
I say that very carefully because that is not the reason I stopped going to church. I stopped going to church because I felt ashamed I didn't want to be there. But the excuse I told people was that I was bothered by people asking me about the mission, which I was. It was hard, right? Because every yeah. time I heard that question, what does it bring up? It brings up the shame. And the expectation. And the expectation. Heaviness. Yep. Every time. Every time it brings that up. So I don't want to face my emotions. That's why I quit going to church. And I, I say this tongue in cheek. I say this as kindly as possible. Anyone who has stopped going to church or left Christ, look in your soul for the real reason why. Because it's not because someone offended you. It's not because somebody peed in your Cheerios or hurt your feelings. It's because there's something emotionally that you don't like something that you're feeling, something you don't want to deal with. And I'm not saying that you have to, but I would plead with you to look in your soul and be sure that you're okay with the reason that you're not part of the Christ church and part of his, you know, why you're not following him and why you're not with him. Because there's a deeper reason. There always is. For me, that deeper reason was I didn't want to face this. I did not want to face it. I was not ready to face it. Honestly, if I had gone on a mission at 19, I would not have been ready. I probably would have had a terrible time and hated it. I probably would have come home and been ashamed for my whole life because I went out unworthily. That's honestly, I can see the writing on the wall. That's how it would have been for me. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm a very passionate person. I, I, I believe in justice as well. I'm not one to do something I don't believe in. I was not going to go on a mission just because people expected me to. That's absolutely not going to be my story. I was not willing to do that. Um, and I guess I should add in here. So I had my patriarchal blessing in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We get the patriarchal blessing, which is a special blessing from someone who is called in the priesthood office of a patriarch. And there's only one in every stake, which is a larger congregation and area. Um, my grandpa was my patriarch growing up. So again, adding to the expectation, adding to the family. I mean, my grandpa was a very righteous man and he was our patriarch and um, a spiritual hero to me growing up. And he did our blessings. He did mine when I was 14. I really wasn't worthy when I got it. I wish I was, but I wasn't. I had said that I was because again, I'm struggling with this at the time, but it's still an incredible piece of personal scripture to me that I've treasured throughout my life. And in that blessing, it talked about, you need a certain mission. And I knew that that was something God wanted me to do. And that's part of what was so hard is it's not, it's not just something that the church is telling me to do. It's something I knew in my heart God wanted me to do and that I knew I wanted to do, but I, I wasn't ready. I didn't want to face that. I didn't want to go. And I hadn't dealt with my stuff, you know, and, uh, it was hard. I mean, I, throughout this journey, I dealt with professional counselors. I went to group counseling. I went to church addiction recovery meetings. I went to every single thing you can possibly think of. I was a part of it at some point. I tried it. I probably drained my parents' bank account way more than I will ever know for all the things that they tried to do to help me. And the truth is none of it really helped that much because again, nobody knew how to deal with this. And that's what's so hard is no matter what I did, no matter what advice I got, man, it just wouldn't work. Um, I remember there was a great talk given at church um, in general conference one time about how, hey, there can only be one player on a stage in a given time. 
And that was kind of, it was one of the authorities, I don't remember who, and it's like, hey, you just have to put a different player on the stage of your mind, you know, and then, then it'll banish the thought. Well, anyone who's listening right now, don't think about pink elephants. What did you just picture? Pink elephant. <laughs> but don't, don't think about the pink elephant, Carly. Why are you I picturing can't it? Stop. stop it. <laughs> you can't, I mean, it's basic psychology, right? Like you can't just outthink a thought. Like it doesn't, our brains are not wired that way. Yeah. It doesn't work. I, and I would try everything. I had a motorcycle. I remember when I was trying, starting to try and go back and be better. I was like 18, 19. I was probably actually 20. And yeah, I was trying to get back clean a little bit. And like, there was a time I was alone at home, nobody in the house, like perfect opportunity, temptations hitting me. And I literally like got up, left the house, went on a motorcycle ride, like cleared my head, did everything I could to remove myself from that situation. And I got home and slipped up. And just the hopelessness of feeling like I'm doing everything that anybody's ever told me to do to try and overcome this. I'm praying so hard and I can't seem to beat this. And I was just at war with it. And the, the truth is you can't, you can't beat an addictive behavior that way. No. You can't be an addictive behavior by trying to just punch it in the mouth. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. You have to address the underlying emotions that are driving that behavior. And I just didn't understand any of that at the time. Now, given motivation is kind of an interesting thing. If you have the right motivation in place, you can white knuckle it and accomplish amazing things. Um, uh, at this time, I was... Let's see. I was kind of post high school. I was totally out of the church uh, for about two years. I was working, doing some stuff. I had followed a girl down to college. That didn't work out. I came back home, was super depressed, started working, worked a couple of different jobs. I held them one for like seven months and they were going to fire me. So I quit before they could fire me. Then I worked another one. And I just, I, I went through a lot of different things trying to find my place in the world. I was just floating. I was just floating. And that happens when you're outside of what you know you should be doing is just nothing works out Yeah, because you're not doing that. You're not following the path, you know, your life should be on. And so just nothing works because sorry, you're not on the path. So nothing's going to work out for you. And that's kind of how I felt. I tried all these different things. I tried different jobs um, and nothing was working. I watched a lot of my friends I'd grown up with go on missions. A lot of the young men that were in my ward, they all left um one of my really good buddies gavin that was in our band he left on his mission and we were jerks that yeah, we supported him i want to i want to say we supported him but we were jerks we egged him on we messed with him he was going to romania so we we bugged him that we we're going to get him a romanian like mail order bride you know what i mean we just were jerks to the guy because none of us were involved in the church at the time uh, but to his credit he went uh, one of my cousins ben who i grew up with and we're the closest in age. He's about a year older than me. He went on a mission. And I was really surprised because the man, when I left California, he was struggling. He was going through a bunch of stuff. And I was just surprised. But he had gotten his life so clean in so many ways, you know, and he had gotten more fit, lost his weight, gotten his health in check, um, and gotten his gospel life in check and the spiritual health in check and had served a mission. And I was like, well, that's really cool that Ben served. And that kind of sparked my interest. You know, there are always little things that were happening that 
you know, Gavin going and Ben going and see my other friends and just kind of starting to question things. I still wasn't ready to come back. I still didn't want to face it. My uncle B had given me uh, two books that had sat in my room in my dresser drawer for, I don't know, probably years. Um, one was Our Search for Happiness, um, which is a great book about the restoration of the gospel. It's M. Russell Ballard. It's absolutely awesome. It's a very easy read. It's kind of a storybook format. I mean, it's just, it's easy. It's short. It's wonderful. Uh, the other one was Articles of Faith. I picked up Articles of Faith one time first, tried to read that. Absolutely terrible. So hard to read. <laughs> Someone who was not involved in gospel. It was like trying to read scripture. Like it was way too intense for me. Yeah. Um, and I ended up reading Our Search for Happiness at some point in this journey of darkness. You know, I, I would punch around my room and look for anything to try and bring me joy. I would look at old memories. I would look at, you know, I was just searching for what am I missing in my life? And I knew there was something. And at some point I came across that book and, and started to read it. Um, and I, as I read that, I remember thinking every time I would read through a chapter or read through sections, I was like, I know that's true. Yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah, that's true. I know that's true. Like there was nothing, there's not a single thing that I was like, I didn't believe. I was like, I believe all this in my heart. Yeah. And you know, it kind of struck me. I'm like, okay, well, if I know that's true, what am I doing? You know? Um, and I don't know the exact timeline of all these things, but somewhere in here, um, I met a girl through work that had recently converted to the church. Did not grow up in the church, was not from Utah. And I think she was a really integral part of my journey um, because for me, I was really sick of kind of the Utah culture and expectations and all these different things. And so to meet someone who's just very real and who had chosen the gospel, I don't know, like there's a fire around recent converts and there's a, a powerful spirit around them. And I saw this person who was fired up about the gospel and about Christ and it really made me think, you know, it made me think about what did I believe? What, you know, and that's kind of one of the things that sparked me to start trying. You know, I read the book, I started reading some scriptures. Um, I started going to church a little bit because I just kind of wanted to know for myself what I really believe. And I had never read the book of Mormon cover to cover. I mean, I went to seminary, I did all things, but I always in anything school related did the bare minimum. I did not do, you know, yeah. like, I was not the overachiever, even though I easily could have been, I was not. Um, and so I wanted to read the whole book of Mormon. That was one of the goals I'd said. I think I was reading like eight pages a day. Um, it was like February. I had started going back. Uh, that was like the first time I went back to church. It was interesting because it all lined up. Like I was doing my health journey. I was like trying to get fit, trying to get my health in order. I was doing MMA. I was hitting the gym. I mean, I was, I cut soda. I lost like 60 pounds in three months. I was feeling awesome. And at the same time was going back to church and like, like literally everything in my life started to line up. It was like, and I don't want to say it's all or nothing because it's really not. But you're just kind of that kind of person though. I am. You're like, yeah. it's either all or nothing for me. You I can't am. be like, halfway doing something yep and, and carly knows my personality i'm very much this way like there's been times i do something i'm like she's like i never would have thought he was going to do that but when i do something i'm just like yeah hey, i'm all in let's go now we're doing yep. it and and once i'm in i'm i'm in you know we're gonna see it through i'm not gonna back out so that's kind of how it was once i started going i was going and it, 
I, honestly, I'm surprised even looking back and especially at the time, how fast that fire in my soul just ignited. And it's just like the flip of a switch. And my testimony didn't come back like the flip of a switch, mm -hmm. but the desire, the desire to get back involved and do things. And that came back so fast and just kept building so fast. And I was reading and reading was hard. Reading the scriptures was hard for me. I mean, trying to do eight pages a day was like ripping my hair out. It was just so hard for me to get through. I didn't understand the scriptures very well at this point. And so a lot of things I was doing, they were hard, but I had a very deep desire in my heart to do it. Even as I started to lose weight, there was this picture of Christ on the wall where my parents' treadmill was facing. And I would run every day and look at that picture. And like, in my mind, I was losing weight to go on a mission and get getting healthy mm -hmm. to go on a mission because I needed to be healthy. And I'd already kind of decided that back in February, March of that year, that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I'd started to come back to church in February. I know I didn't meet with the bishop right away. I was kind of just dipping my toe in the water. Um, I, I have to say, I'm incredibly grateful for a lot of people at this time. Like, in the couple of years I was gone, I wanted nothing to do with church. There was people that showed up in my house. There was a time I literally told my mom, next time you let them in the basement to come see me, I will cock this shotgun and chase them out of the house because I don't want them bothering me. And at the time I meant it. I mean, would I've actually done it? Probably not, but I meant it in my mind. I was just so sick of people showing up. My sister would leave scriptures on the bed. My brothers, they would just do little things and you know, I knew they cared. I knew they cared. I didn't care at the time, but I knew they cared. And, you know, my sister was in that singles ward that I was supposed to be going to. And I'm sure constantly brought my name up. And so people constantly showed up. And I had a wonderful Elder's Corn president, Eric Nielsen, that showed up again and again and again, um, along with several other people who were part of his committee. He was not the only one. Um, some of my friends, from my ward growing up had come back from their missions and they got involved and were coming to see me. And so it was like kind of perfect timing for all that where because they had come so much, I felt loved enough to show up and to not feel like I didn't know anybody. So was there ever a point where it went from like, this is super annoying that they're bugging me to like, okay, I'm going to like actually try to go back. Like, was there like something that switched? Like, did something happen or did was it kind of just gradual? You know, I don't even remember, like, honestly, I don't even remember why I went back the first week I did. I really don't. And I think it's just because I wanted to, but there was, there was a couple times that had come and like literally forced me to go to church and that did not work for me. <laughs> like, no, you can't be forced to do anything. I was really mad. I was frustrated. I was like, don't ever let them come bug me. And I, I, that did not work. But I think they started to soften my heart. You know, they were showing up with cookies instead of trying to teach me a lesson or have a gospel discussion, which I did not want to do. They they came and just got to know me and asked me questions about myself and gave me some cookies and just stood on the doorstep and didn't make it a whole thing, which I didn't want it to be. And I think that's a lesson for all of us is love people the way they want to be loved. You know, like at that point, I did not want somebody to force the gospel down my throat. And I didn't need that. And um, so I, I just think I felt that love a lot. Katie, my sister, was continually inviting me. And I think at some point I said, okay, whatever, I'll go this week, you know. And in my true Nate fashion, you know, like I don't do anything until I do it.
But once I go, I'm like, kind of like I'm in, you know, and I don't think I went every week right away, but I pretty quickly started to come back. Um, Easter hit that year. And there was, I felt the spirit so strong. I don't know why that day, but I was there Easter Sunday and someone had, was doing a, a musical number. It was just piano. And was, there was no vocals. There's no nothing. It was just a piano. And I always, always, always have loved music. I sang in the choir in church when I was a kid. I was a singer in my band. I mean, I just, the music speaks to my soul. It's a way I very much feel the spirit. And man, it just hit me. Like, I don't know why, but I sat there and listened to that. And I felt the spirit and I felt God's love so strong. And that was, I think, the moment where I kind of was like, holy crap, like, what am I missing? You know, like what, how could I not want to be here? You know, I was so emotional and just wanted to feel that spirit in my life again. You know, you when you've been gone for so long, like you forgot what you're missing. You don't even know what it feels like anymore. And and then it's like, you've been woken up again. You're like, oh my gosh, like how I've been asleep this whole time. How have I ignored this huge, important thing? So that, that was like big. In fact, I was kind of like, from February, I was kind of doing stuff, but I didn't, I was just kind of dabbling with church. I was really focusing on my health and my weight and then kind of dabbling with church. But after that in April, I was like, I was on fire with church. I was like, I'm going, I'm going. And um, my friend who I met at work, who was a recent convert. She wanted to go on a mission. She's like, I'm putting in my papers. I was like, and a lot of people at the time thought, oh, well, Nate wants to go because, because she wants to go. And I'm like, no, I, but it did spark some fire in me. And I wanted to go. And um, so she was part of that. And then part of that was just me having these experiences at church, you know? And again, I'm not wanting to do something for anybody else. I wanted to go because I wanted to go. Um, so I met with my bishop. He was absolutely amazing. One of the best bishops I've ever had. And he was extremely nonchalant. And that's what I loved about him. And she was like, yeah, everybody struggles with this. So here's how we're going to deal with it. You know, and just kind of gave me some goals. And again, I bring, I circle back to when I brought up motivation, the right motivation can allow you to do a lot of things. So I knew at this point, if I wanted to serve a mission, I can't be looking at pornography. They will not let me go. And I, I honestly thought I was going to have this big, long repentance process, probably take at least a year before I could leave. And I had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame that I was carrying into me with the bishop that first time. And, um, you know, again, he was a great bishop. He did not shame me at all. I felt the Savior's love. And what surprised me is he's like, no, let's let's get you going. You know, like, let's go. Come on, let's go. Um, uh, I, again, was just very, very surprised how quickly they, they wanted to get me going. But it was not a big, long repentance process. I met with the bishop. I met with the stake president. I went through some channels. There was a little fear. There was a little, you know, I, I was scared you know, going through that process, but those leaders, you know, really loved me and, and helped me through that time. And they wanted to get me out there. They could tell that my soul was on fire and it was. Um, and what's interesting is like, I did not understand the gospel that well. You know, I knew the gospel. I've been taught my whole life and I had a strong testimony of the savior. Like, that's all I had. Like, I didn't have like this great knowledge where I'm like, I'm going to be a great missionary because I know all the scriptures. And I know I had not been that good at scriptures growing up. I And again, I was reading them at this point. I was trying, but I, all I knew was 
I had felt Christ's power in my life and man, I wanted to share it. You know, I don't know at what point it was, but I had, you know, been reading. I'd had that experience on Easter at church. And I got to that point where I was like, I need to repent. And there was one morning, I think it was on a Sunday before I went to church that I read my patriarchal blessing and I sat there and I just was distraught. I was just in tears thinking about everything I'd lost because I'm like, these blessings that were promised are gone because I didn't do what it says I needed to do. And I just prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I poured out my soul to the Lord and I begged for forgiveness and just in my soul wanted to be forgiven because I wanted those things. I wanted that path for my life. Mm -hmm. And I had the strongest impression, one of the strongest I've had in my life where I just felt like the Lord just wrapped his arms around me. And I just, I felt forgiven. I felt alive. I felt light. I mean, I, it's so hard to even describe, but like that burden was physically lifted from me. Well, and anybody that's been through that, like sincerely, like yep. given their heart to Christ and been like, take this from me has felt that, Yeah, you know, and it doesn't work until you are just sincere in the depths of your soul. Yeah. And I was at this point, I truly deeply wanted to be forgiven and not because I knew I could be perfect, but because I truly, truly wanted to be better through Christ. And I wanted to change and I wanted to be who he wanted me to be. And I was at that point and, you know, I felt in my heart so strongly those, those promises were real and they were still enforced. They were still valid if I would get back on that path. And that is a big part of what lit my soul on fire. And all my priesthood leaders could see this, that I was ready to go. I was, you know, I was like, um, I don't know, Alma and the sons of Messiah, when they turned from wickedness to righteousness, they were just like the best missionaries. Like I was, I had that fire in my soul where the gospel had lit a light in me that I had not felt in years. Mm -hmm. I remember taking the sacrament again the first time. It just filled my soul. It just peace, peace to my soul. And I, you know, every little thing on that path of coming back, I was like, oh my word, what have I missed? You know, and it was still hard getting ready. It was still hard reading the scriptures. It was still hard doing all the things. Do you feel like you still, throughout that whole journey, coming back to church and stuff, do you feel like you felt that shame that you were feeling Absolutely. Before? Absolutely. Because I'm not perfect at this point. Yeah. I'm trying, but I mean, it's week to week with the bishop. You know, he's like, hey, let's meet every single week. And that's what bishops do a lot of time. I mean, every week, let's talk about how you're doing. And that motivation of wanting to go through the temple, um, be able to in the Melchizedek priesthood, go on a mission, that was my motivation to white knuckle through. And because my soul was on fire at this point, it was honestly really easy for a while. So that, that was like my only saving grace was, you know, you go through this big repentance process. And sometimes there's like this honeymoon phase of like, everything in life is perfect and bright and happy. And so because I was kind of in this honeymoon phase and I felt the spirit so strong, I wasn't dealing with that as much now, you know, because I wasn't struggling on a weekly basis. Right. I was, I was doing pretty well and I knew I had to. So I had the right motivation to force myself to get through so I could go. Um, and I was doing a really good job of that. But at the same time, even though I was sincere in my heart and my repentance, I hadn't done the mental work. My brain, my heart was changed. My brain wasn't. 
right? So my heart was truly changed and sincere, but my brain still had all kinds of messed up pathways, emotions I didn't know how to deal with, ways I was buffering. And I didn't understand that at the time. Right. But, um, you know, the shame I still felt was I had not forgiven myself. You know, and that's what was so hard. And, you know, because I felt like the church, the Lord had forgiven me so quickly, so willingly, it was hard for me to forgive myself. I'm like, no, I I need to be punished more than that. You know, like I can't like just I be deserve forgiven. more punishment. That's yeah. the same talking. It's exactly. It's so confusing to, you know, to be out of church for years doing whatever I want to do. And to basically come back and have them say, hey, you can go serve as soon as you're ready. And I literally from when I first came back to church in February to when I went on my mission, I left in November. That is nine months. And I really didn't fully start coming back to church till April. So that's seven months. Yeah. You know, from when I really started coming back to church in earnest to when I was leaving on my mission. We put in my papers in August. This is like four months. Yeah, that's pretty quick. I mean, it was way faster than I thought. And so I just... I didn't, I had not forgiven myself. And that was one of the things the bishop kept telling me is like, you are forgiving. You need to forgive yourself. And honestly, I don't even think I forgot, gave myself fully, even when I was a missionary. I think it took until years after that. I, I can confidently say I have now. I'm grateful for my past. But at the time, I didn't even understand what that really meant. Right. To be able to fully forgive myself. I was angry with myself for what I missed out on, you know? Um, and for being away from the Lord for so long. And like, why did I do these things and not repent sooner? <laughs> you know, you kind of hate yourself for that procrastination. Um, anyway, so I was good. I got ready for the mission. I mean, I went and served, got my call to Philadelphia. Um, my parents were flabbergasted. They were so confused why all of a sudden I was in church again and going on a mission. They're like, what? um had some cool experiences getting ready i had to get out of some debt i really had to sell a lot of things i had i had a motorcycle i absolutely loved i had to sell that um i sold like my drum set i sold my guitar amps i mean a lot of my earthly possessions that i had built up had to go because i had to get out of debt my my parents so in the church we pay our own way on a mission and so you know it's usually ten twelve thousand dollars that you pay to go volunteer your time for two years to go serve the Lord. Um, and a lot of people don't understand that about the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints is when you see those missionaries on the street, they are volunteers. They are paying to be there and volunteer for two years of their life every day, 16 hours a day. And then they sleep at night and they go do it again the next day. And there are no breaks. And that's what I was signing up for. And my parents thankfully were willing to pay my way so I could go, but they're like, you got to get yourself out of debt. And I some cool experiences on the way to that. I really built my testimony tithing, really built my testimony stronger in general. Um, you know, I got to the MTC. It was great. I mean, <laughs> I did what every missionary does. I cried my eyes out because of how hard it is when you first go in. And I learned all these things about the gospel I didn't understand and how to share it. And I mean, my soul was already on fire, but hitting the field, it was on fire more. I, I'm a naturally very shy person which people wouldn't get knowing me now because I've learned to be extremely outgoing. I can, I can confidently stand up and lead a meeting, get in front of a congregation, sing. I mean, I can, I could do things that you would not think about an introverted person doing. Yeah. 
Um, but I am very shy and very introverted. And so that was a hard thing about the mission was I was terrified to talk to people, not because I was afraid, but just because I don't like bugging people. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people when I'm out and about, I'm like, leave me alone. Don't mess with me. I've gotten a mission. I'm doing stuff. I just, I, I struggle with that, but I, my soul was so on fire that I just, I went for it. You know, they dropped me in Camden, New Jersey, my first area. And it was murder a brand capital of the murder of the capital USA. of the US. Yeah, one of the most dangerous cities. And um, I mean, we were idiots. We we're walking around at night in bad parts of town because we didn't know the town. Me and my my trainer were dropped into the area, doubled in, and kind of starting fresh. So we didn't know anything about anything. We didn't have a car, so we're walking, you know, many miles per day. We're taking the the bus. I it was like a whole new world to me, but the mission was amazing, you know, and I have to bring this up because I think this is important for others who are struggling. I wasn't perfect on my mission either. That honeymoon phase wears off. You know, and you have a companion with you 24 seven as a missionary, but I still made mistakes and many missionaries still make mistakes, still have different struggles that come up. And it was not as often on the mission, but it, it happened. Issues came up, like things happened. I had to repent of, but I was always honest with my mission president. As soon as something happened, I was always honest. I always talked to my priests and leaders. I never tried to hide anything. And I dealt with a lot of that shame as a missionary, even worse, because when you're supposed to go out and represent the savior and his name is on your name tag, and you know what you did last night, man, like that shame hits really hard. Yeah. It's different level. And, and being a missionary is hard it is extremely hard um, we talk about how great it is all the time and it is it's like one of you know it's a very enriching experience but it sucks a lot of the time like it's you're constantly out of your comfort zone constantly the day-to-day -day effort is more than any normal human being could sustain for any length of time yep. you're truly endowed with power to be able to get through it there are many days i didn't think i could get through it but I truly did love being a missionary. I mean, I would go back in a heartbeat right now. Um, and that's the crazy thing about it. So how hard it is, it's still like the best thing you've ever done because you're literally on the Lord's errand. But it was so much deeper shame as a missionary when you would have a mistake happen because you could feel that spirit leave you. You know, I'd be out proselyting like, I don't have it today. And I don't feel like I'm being guided today. And I don't, and I mean, you feel responsible responsible to be worthy to have that spirit to have that guidance because the lord needs you on his errand that day you know and it was so hard i had incredible companions i never really talked about it with my companions i i wish i would have because they would have been incredible and helpful um you know at least i didn't talk about it with them much i talked about my past with a lot of my companions but not the the present you know and the present struggles and but I had great mission companions that they could tell when I was having a hard day and they were there for me and they got me through a lot of difficult things and um, loved me through it. I honestly loved every single one of my companions, um, you know, some more than others, but they were all awesome. <laughs> some more than that's others. true for every missionary, <laughs> true for every missionary. I was brave to see that on a podcast. <laughs> some, some people you vibe with some you don't, but I, I loved every single one of them and they loved me and they were good to me. Um, but, you know, it was hard. I came home. Um, honestly, was so happy. I served a full two years. 
Um, I'd done some incredible things. I set out to go baptize hundred people. I baptized like eight, you know, I didn't baptize like hundred people. Um, but I, I have zero regrets about my missionary service. I served with my full purpose of heart. I truly had experiences I'll carry with me my entire life. People that I will love wherever, even if I never see them again, um, you know, wouldn't trade it for the world. It was awesome. Uh, but you get home from the mission, you're like, what now? What do I do with my life? You know, like yeah, what's, your purpose is gone. What's next? And of course, I was thinking of school. I was thinking of marriage. Like, I had some things in mind, but it's hard. You come home from a mission and you want to keep all those habits. You know, I was studying in the morning. I was trying to get my brothers involved with me studying. I was doing all these things, but I, you know, it doesn't. It didn't last very long. Even though I was really committed and trying to do it, it's just it's hard because real life is not like being a missionary. You have responsibilities you have to do school you have work you need to pay bills you need to do things and it's a lot harder to balance that you know as as, as a normal person living day-to-day life and trying to not lose that light of the gospel that takes a lot of practice um i mean coming home i was it was good you know i got back into work i landed an awesome job i had worked at Coldstone on and off all through high school and love the owner. I had really wanted to move up in those ranks before my mission and didn't get to move up quite to where I wanted to. I had done a lot, but I hadn't you know, been able to manage or do anything. And it kind of worked out perfectly where as I was coming home from my mission, the manager was leaving. And before I even got home, the owner had reached out to me and kind of offered me like, hey, do you want to come and, and be the manager? And I mean, honestly, to me, it was kind of like God giving me back something I thought I'd given up. Like I actually thought I'd given up some of those opportunities to go serve a mission, which I was completely okay with. Yeah. But like, I literally felt like God just gave it back to me and said, Hey, now you can have it because now you've done what you need to do. And I would not have been a good manager if I hadn't been a missionary. There's a lot of skills I learned on the mission that I will carry with me forever. And I needed to learn. And I was a much better leader, a better manager, um, managed Coldstone for, four years or so while I was going to school. I started dating a lot. It really didn't go very well. I mean, I sincerely, sincerely was trying to find an eternal companion and I knew what I wanted. I didn't want someone who had never struggled and who had never seen difficulties in their life because I needed someone who had chosen Christ. I needed someone who had made that choice, who had experienced that personal conversion I'm a solid and Carly's smiling because she knows it was her. I mean, we both had dated a lot. I was fed up. My employees at Coldstone were all several years younger than me. Um, a lot of them were in high school, several in college, but I was, I had several years on all of them. I mean, I served a mission at 21, got home when I was 23. So I was older than most missionaries. It's kind of like a theme throughout my life. I was always kind of older. I did stuff a little later than some folks, but um Anyhow, I, I had gotten to this point where I was just fed up with dating. I was like, you know, forget this. I'm going to date myself. I don't want to date anymore. And my employees kind of took pity on me. And I was trying to open up and allow them to befriend me. Like, let us set you up with some of our friends. I'm like, oh, whatever. And um, they didn't tell me this. They had made me a, a fake Tinder profile. That was not me because it was them misrepresenting me. And um, that's kind of a, a long story I won't tell here, but that's how me and Carly actually met. <laughs> she swiped right on my fake Tinder profile and the rest is history, you know? 
Um, luckily, I did actually think she was really cute. Nothing had happened on the mission. We both did serve in Philly, but I barely knew her at the end. I was her zone leader. I was a training elder at the time. We were traveling four days to five days a week in different areas. I mean, we were just slammed. I mean, it was the last thing on my mind. And so, I mean, barely knew her, but I knew her enough to have seen her testimony. And that was a big deal to me. You know, I, I knew that she was a good missionary. That meant a lot. We went on literally one date. I had her over for movies at my house. I was super awkward. And I mean, we just immediately hit it off. Um, I think it was the first time I ever felt like somebody immediately reciprocated the love that I wanted to give. Um, and Carly immediately reciprocated everything back. And I think that's why we hit off so quickly is we just both were so willing to open our hearts. And um, that first date, I remember I took her to Cold Stone at the end of the date and we were talking and she shared a lot about her story and her testimony and why she served a mission. And like, that was it for me. It clicked that I was like, yeah, this is what I want. I want somebody who's chosen this. And um, we were engaged in three weeks, married in 11. After that, um, you know, it was a very short process. I knew what I wanted. And as soon as I knew it, I was like, dude, put a ring on it. Let's go. Again, I'm a very passionate person. I've learned to be very logical. Um, love is rarely logical. Clearly, we made the right choice. We're over seven years in and more in love every day, right, babe? Yep. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I know I am. I don't know if she is. No, I am. Um, it's been awesome. You know, it's it's been the greatest blessing. And again, this was another fulfillment of prophecy, my patriarchal blessing, that one another one of those promises I thought I had lost. And that now was coming to fruition, being fulfilled to the literal sense because I was living the gospel and doing things. And I really, I had a hard time after my mission. I had been struggling with pornography again, pretty badly before I met Carly, because I'd been trying to date, been trying to do things. I'd been pretty clean, but I'd struggle on occasion. I still had no tools to deal with this. Still had no idea still how had to no deal help. with it. No still had no resources. help. I'm in my mid twenties. I still don't know how to deal with this. I mean, that's how bad this is though, right? Like nobody has help. And so when I met Carly, you know, I was still struggling, but I was honest with her, like what, date number three? Mm -hmm. I mean, I did not want her to be my girlfriend unless she knew. I wanted to be like, no, like I have to lay everything out because I'm not going to date somebody and then like drop this bomb later down the line. I want her to know up front. And to her credit, I mean, Carly just, I wept and she just loved me and was just there for me. And like, that was like, seal the deal, put a ring on it. Like, I love this girl. She well, loves me. Also from my perspective though, I think pornography is such like a secret thing. Like people try to hide it. So the fact that you could just be like, this is what I'm dealing with. And you have to be okay. Like, you have to know that this is what, you know, this is a part of my life. I knew you were always going to be honest with me. Yeah. And that's why I was okay yeah. with it is because a lot of people do not have those situations when yeah. they're dealing with unwanted pornography use. It's a lot of secrecy. It's a lot of lies, a lot yeah. of betrayal. And you didn't do that to me. Yeah. You, you were always very honest. And that was always a big thing for me. It's like, I knew I was going to need to be honest with a potential spouse about all of my past, you know, and everything I dealt with. And I needed somebody who understood that and was willing to love me through it. And I'm sure at the time you had no idea what you're really signing up for and how hard it might be at times. 
Yeah. But in your heart, I knew that you were willing to love me through it and work through it with me. And you have, and you know, that gave me a lot of motivation to just, again, a kind of a new honeymoon phase. Now I'm new in this new love, like literally for the first time in my life, because I grew up as kind of the chubby kid, had self-confidence issues. I was always a really big guy, which I like being a big guy, but I was always overweight. I mean, never really dated girls ever. I had tried a few times, never worked. This is going to sound really terrible, but it was always girls I was really, really not interested in that were interested in me. Um, and I was always interested in girls that I saw as way, way, way out of my league. It was like never going to happen. And so I just, and I didn't have the confidence to try and go win somebody over either, right? Because part of this issue is pornography and everything else is it robbed me of every ounce of self-confidence I ever could have had. Yeah. And so I had none. I had no confidence in myself. And that really wore down my my self-image between my weight and the porn and everything else. Just, man, that was hard, you know? And so anyhow, that that was a difficult thing. Getting into, I don't know where I'm going with this, but getting into then kind of dating Carly, like I knew I wanted to be honest with somebody about what I had been through. I knew I wanted to be honest. I didn't want to hide anything because I'd been through kind of that up and down. And now I finally had this love, you know, this, this person who actually loved me back. And I was like, I'm not going to screw this up. You know, I'm going to do this the right way. And um, so as we did, you know, and that's kind of how we approached it. I didn't have any issues. We were able to get married in the temple. Um, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, one of the happiest days of my life. And you know, me and Carly are like just soulmates. I mean, it's literally God worked multiple miracles in each of our lives for us each to be at the right place that we were in when it was time for us to get married. And it really was perfect. And there was no doubt in my mind that we're supposed to be together. Um, I still just, feel that yeah, way. Still feel that way. Yep. Still feel that way 100%. And we've been through a lot of stuff. It's not always been easy, but like, 100% we're meant to be together. And I'm just so grateful for that. And that God put her in my life. Didn't have any issues again until we're married. And I mean, honestly, most guys think if you struggle with pornography, like every guy thinks like, Oh, I'll get married. And then I won't, won't have an issue anymore. anymore because you know, I'll be able to have sex with my wife. No, <laughs> that's not how it works because pornography does not have anything to do with just sex. And that's what people get, they struggle with, they don't understand is they, pornography is a way to buff away emotions, the same way overeating is, the same way social media addiction is, the same way a gazillion other things are. Um, and I am really bad at buffering away emotions. I'm a man, I don't like dealing with emotions, you know, and none of us do. And so, yeah, there's that honeymoon phase of marriage. I don't know how long it was, probably at least six months into our marriage before I ever had a, a slip up. Um, maybe a year. I don't, I honestly don't yeah, remember. I remember, but I remember the first time I messed up and just all oh, the shame, you know, that deep shame. And I told Carly and I mean, she was distraught. Um, well, and I just like, I don't think because he had not struggled pretty much the entire time that we were together. Like yep. I kind of had that thought of, oh, he's not going to struggle with this anymore. Yep. And I didn't know how I'd react to it, but yeah, I did not react good. Like I had pretty bad anxiety attacks yep. because I just didn't know how to handle it, which only added 
to how horrible you felt about yourself. Yeah, it, it was actually making it harder for me, which we can talk about now. We've gone on this journey together. But I mean, I would, if I slipped up, she would have an anxiety attack. It would be this whole full blown out thing. I would feel like a piece of literal crap for days, which only made me want to struggle more. I'd like make him leave the house. Like it was very hard. It was bad. It was very hard. Yeah. There's times she's like, go stay at your brother's house. I want you here. I mean, it's just, man, that's a tough thing to go through. And again, at this point, I still have no tools and I'm, I'm always trying to repent. I'm talking to my bishops. I am actively going to church. It's not like I'm not doing the things I'm trying to do all things. Carly would ask me question after question after question. Almost interrogating you. Oh, my word. Trying to get to the root of it. And it was so hard for me. I was so frustrated. I didn't want to be frustrated with her because I'm the one that screwed up. But I'm like, this isn't helping me. It's just making me feel worse. And she, bless her heart, you're trying to get to the root, root of the, the thing, the root cause to try and help me. But I didn't know what it was. And so I'm like, I can't tell you because I don't know the answer. And I've been looking for it for 10 years. So if I knew, I would do it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I'd almost try to prevent you yeah. from messing up. Yep, yep. And that's kind of, this is another thing that serial happens is the wife wants to control a situation. So control the passwords, control things. And part of me wanted you to control because I didn't want to be accountable. Well, guess what? That doesn't work either because now, in a way, I start to blame Carly. If I screw up, well, and I'm not doing this intentionally, but well, she let me have access. She did this or... Well, we fought about this and that set me off and that's not good either. It's not good for me. It's not good for her. It's not good for our marriage. Um, so we went through a rocky couple years with that. I mean, our marriage was good. I mean, I honestly can say, I don't think at any point I would say our marriage was bad. No, I really wouldn't. Even though we were going through some stuff with that, like we had a wonderful marriage. We've always loved each other. Uh, we've always wanted to be together. Like there's never been a time it was like, this isn't worth it, you know, um, at least not for me, hopefully <laughs> not for you. Yeah. Um, but it was still very hard to be going through that together and still have no tools. And, and at this point, I started going to the church, ARP, the Addiction Recovery Program again, um, never had vibed with me. I knew it wasn't going to help. It didn't help. And it's not because I believed it wouldn't help. I went in sincerely. I but always you, and you've sincere. done that multiple times. I've done it multiple times. I know the 12 steps. I know the thing. I'm like, guys, I, I know this program. And for 95% of people, guess what? It doesn't work. So I just want to say to you guys, if you're listening or your wives, if you're listening, if you are struggling, it is not all on you. People don't know how to help with this. You haven't had the right tools. You need to stop beating yourself up. You need to find the right tools. Because I played that game for at least 15 years of my life. At least. Um, it's probably been more like 20 <laughs> coming up on now. Um, and man, it just is so hard um, to be, to just to feel like you're the problem. <laughs> to feel like I'm doing all the things they told me to do and it doesn't work. And so I must just be bad, you know, like. And the shame you feel continually messing up, having to talk to new bishop after new bishop after new bishop. I mean, my bishop ratings are pretty high, man. I've got a pretty good count going of bishops I've had to talk to. And I've gotten to the point where I'm extremely open about everything I've been through. I have forgiven myself, but that has taken a lot. And none of the ARP programs, professional counseling, bishops, none of that helped me even a tiny bit. 
to get to where I am today. It helped me to maybe learn a few things about myself, to maybe learn a few things about pornography, to reflect. Sure. It helped me to repent in the spiritual sense. Absolutely. Didn't help me to change, though. It didn't help me to change my brain. You know, my heart, again, my heart was changed. My heart had been changed for a long time. And my heart was right, I think, in the first place. But the problem is my brain wasn't. Mm-hmm. And trying to heal that, I just didn't know. Anyhow, we were, we had been married, I don't know, a few years. I think we had Lucy at the time, had our first kid. And um, I had messed up again, you know, and this was a cycle that would happen. It wasn't all the time, but, you know, maybe every month or every couple months, it was often enough. It was an ongoing issue. It wasn't like once a year or something. It was, you know, at times a significant issue, a weekly issue, and other times a monthly or every couple months. It was just kind of, it would go in ebb and flow. And Carly had gotten to a little bit better place with it. She still did not react the best, but she wouldn't have like full-blown anxiety attacks. It was more just like, whatever. Yeah. Just do what you're going to do. She just had emotionally checked out. That's kind of where she was at. So it's just kind of like, I'm not going to deal with it. It's your problem. And I was like, okay, well, that was better for me. Still wasn't great, but it was better for me because she'd be distant for a couple of days and that was hard. But at least I didn't feel like I was going to like destroy her soul because I told her because that just made me not want to tell her. And I knew I had to be honest with her because she'd kill me if I didn't, you know? So it's like, it was better, but it was still not great. I was driving out around Newton Reservoir. I like to go fishing out there and um, was looking for podcasts on pornography. And I think this was spirit really intervened um, because I happened upon um, the self mastery podcast, which is what Zach Spafford originally called his podcast. Um, and then it was overcoming pornography Try to remember what it is now. It's like multiple names. It's like Thrive Beyond. Yeah, I think it's Thrive Beyond Pornography. Thrive Beyond Pornography is his current. I absolutely love Zach. Um, he's become a life coach, a friend. Um, I found his first podcast episode. He literally, I've talked to him about it since. He's like, it's crazy that you found it because he's like, I hadn't even like published it on social media and stuff yet. Like we hadn't even told people that we posted it yet. They had just put it up. And as someone who's doing a podcast, I'm like, that would be weird if someone just found our podcast. Like when I search for it, it's hard to find. So like, how did that even pop up? But I did. I found his first episode. I listened to it and I, it just blew my mind. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to reach out to this guy. Like I got to see if he needs help with marketing, my degrees in marketing business. I was like, I, I, I just like had this spiritual witness. Like I need to help this guy and um, I need to be a part of what he's doing. I need to learn from him. Um, and so I did. Um, Zach's whole thing was his story is not that different from mine. You know, he's a little older. It went through a little different era, sure, but introduced pornography very young, went through all the ARP programs, lots of bishops, nothing worked, you know, very similar in that sense. And him and his wife, Darcy, kind of figured this out. They figured out some tools for how to actually address the emotions and to change your brain and to do it because it's what you want to do. Not, not because it's what you have to do, but to do what you actually want to do. And that's his whole thing is help you become who you want to be, help you be who you want to be. And he doesn't judge anybody. If people are like, yeah, my goal is to use pornography once a month. He'd be like, cool. That's your goal. And he'll help you with that goal. Like he'll help you with whatever your goal is for me. It's like, I just don't want this to be a part of my life at all. That's my goal. 
Um, I reached out to Zach. I was really surprised actually that he responded, but I ended up helping him build some sales funnels. I worked on some ads for him, um, did some stuff for free. We did kind of some trade. And um, through that, I was able to go through his program. I've never done one-on-one -on -one coaching extensively with Zach, but I've been through his group program multiple times. Um, I've listened to a ton, a ton, a ton of his content, seen a ton of his content, had one-on-one -on -one discussions with him many times. I mean, I've really gotten pretty ingrained in his stuff and learned the, the value of the things I have learned from his program is worth more than everything I learned prior in helping me to change my life and change my brain. And it's not just been about helping me overcome a struggle with pornography. It's been about helping me change the way I think about everything. Um, you know, he teaches tools about how to, to look at why you're actually doing something and what you actually want out of a situation. And um, I cannot say my brain is perfectly healed or perfectly changed. I can't say that I'm 100% perfect and 100% healed today and that I'll never, ever struggle again. I can't say that. But I can truly say in my heart at this point that what I truly believe is, yeah, I can, I can look at pornography if I choose to do that, but I really don't want to. It's not a part of who I want to be. You're not like white knuckling. I'm not, anymore. I'm not white knuckling with it. I'm not fighting with it. There are many times I have what could be perfect opportunities, look at pornography and I have no desire to do that. Um, and I never thought in my life I would come to a point where I can say that. Um, you know, there's still situations I'm not perfect at. There's still certain triggers that I haven't fully worked out those brain pathways I'm working through. But, you know, 98% of things that would cause me to want to look at porn, I've dealt with the underlying emotions. You know, I've dealt with why am I buffering with pornography to avoid this emotion? And I'm cognizant, like I'm so much more aware of my emotions and what is causing me to want to do this. Like, oh, well, I'm feeling this right now. And that's why I want to do that because I'm avoiding this. I don't want to deal with this. Um, it's made our marriage better. Um, through that process, Carly was able to work with Zach's wife, Darcy. And she never in our marriage had had this epiphany. And I could not have helped her have this epiphany of how to help me. And yeah. Darcy helped her to see that this was not about her. And this isn't like a shameless plug or like an ad for like Zach and Darcy. Like they really, I truly believed like were the game changers and, and how we've dealt with this in our marriage. I remember living in my dad's basement, um, having my second daughter who was just very colicky and I was in the throes of postpartum anxiety and depression, like didn't even want to feed my kid, like just so depressed. And we, I like reluctantly got on this call with them because Nate was um, on one of these group, these group calls. And I told Darcy, I'm like, I just don't understand why I'm going through all these things. And he just is choosing to look at these like disgusting women over me. And she just like stops and she's like, do you really believe that? And I was like, what do you mean? Do I really believe that? Like, is that really what you're going to say to me right now? You know, when I'm like feeling so angry and hurt, you know, in my own stuff. But on top of that, you know, Nate's looking at porn. Like, yeah. I don't want to deal with this. And she was like, do you really believe that he wants to look at other women and not show his complete love to you? And I was like, well, 
no. <laughs> like, I don't believe that he would rather look at pornography than be with me. I don't believe that. And like something just clicked and it was like, oh, this isn't about me. Like, this is not about me. Like, this is his brain. This is his stuff. This is a stress response. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it just like, I don't know what switched, but I just, I was projecting my own emotions and my own like insecurities onto the situation. And she just really kind of pulled me out of it. Like, do you actually believe that that's who Nate is? And it was like, of course I don't believe that, you yeah. know? So I, they've just helped tremendously just with our, both of our thought processes, people that I know, you know, women struggle, have struggled with pornography and, and men do too. And it's, but they've, you know, it's equally yoked. Like they can, they've really helped us. So they've truly changed our lives. I, I love them. Like I love my own family. Like I just have so much love for them. And so grateful that they follow the inspiration to, you know, Zach left his full-time job to start thrive beyond pornography and do that full time and he does that still as life coach i would very much very much encourage you to seek them out if you need help with this in your marriage as a man or woman a husband or wife i mean they they will help you um but i will say i mean that was a game changer for me carly figuring out that it was not about her and it took her some time to figure out the tools to figure out how to help me still but once carly figured out what i needed like game changer for me because it allowed me to allow myself to not be ashamed. It allowed me to come and say, you know what? My batting average is actually pretty damn good. I bat like 96%, 98%. That's better than any MLB baseball player. You know, like I do good. So such a high percentage of the time and I hate myself for the small percentage of my life. And it allowed me to come and say where I was at the time was, I can look at pornography and I might choose to, I might want to. That's truly where I was in my brain path and my value system at the time was, yeah, I might want to do that. And I might, because I was not ready to give up that buffer and I didn't know how to deal with the emotions below it. I didn't know what those were. And until I could give myself permission to be able to do that and have it be okay, I couldn't even start to overcome it. Mm. I had to be able to take the church side out of it, the shame out of it, and the marriage out, out of it, and just look at what do I want and what do I believe and what do I want out of life? And that's what Zach helped me to do. And being able to do that, I started to work through all those different things that I that were holding me back and that were causing me to buffer away certain emotions with pornography, with soda, with all these things that were not good for me. And I, I would tell you this, I cannot eat a cookie i cannot uh you know go to the gym i can't do like any of these things without thinking about am i buffering how am i dealing with this emotion is this a positive buffer or a negative buffer like uh, it, literally my daily thought processes have been changed for life because of the stuff that i have learned um it's been a long road it's been a long road but through that and everything i've learned there i've been able to completely forgive myself i've become extremely open I love talking about pornography. I love talking about the struggles. I have no shame in my story. I am so proud and so grateful for what I went through because it's made me who I am today. And I would not have the testimony of the Savior that I have if I had not been through that process of repentance. And, 
you kind of understand, I spent so many hours on my mission studying repentance, pleading with the Lord to take this from me, to heal me, to make me better. And he wouldn't. The Lord would not take this away. This was not a trial he was going to take from me because he knew I needed it. He knew I had to go through it. So why would I be angry about that journey? If he knew I needed to go through it, then so should I. You know, and the Lord doesn't take away those things. He lets us work through them. He helps us through them, but he doesn't just take them away. And he wasn't just going to take that away. I needed to work through it. And there's still things I have to work through. But I can say I'm truly confident in the process and how to change my brain and how to change my thinking and how to really repent. Um, and the Savior is a massive part of that. You can't pray away sin. You can't pray away all your struggles and expect them to just disappear into thin air. You can pray and ask forgiveness. You can pray and repent, and those things are great. But you cannot pray and just ask God to take away the struggle. You know, you have to pray looking for, look to be guided as to how to approach the struggle. Look to understand where's the struggle coming from. Well, how, how is my thinking need to change? What's guiding me to these things I don't want to be in my life? You know, ask God to illuminate the path, but he's not going to just take it away. You know, that's something I've had to learn. And um, I'm honestly at the point in my life where I'm just so happy with where I'm at. I'm I'm happy in the gospel that I've been in many years. Um, Zach was a part of that, but we were always strong in church as a couple. I mean, we've not been perfect by any means. We've skipped a lot of second hours in our day, um, but we've we always struggled with questions and testimonies. Yeah. And like, you know, that we've struggled. But... Yeah. Normal stuff, normal stuff, you know, that, that has come up. But at the same time, we've always gone to church and we've always believed and had testimonies and you know, generally that's been good. Uh, but as we have yoked ourselves more with the Lord, like I just have felt closer and closer to him. Um, you know, we're out in Oklahoma. I was able to go out with missionaries a lot. I was able to share a lot there when I'm able to have conversations with other men who are struggling with pornography and support them and help them and guide them. I feel a strength there. I mean, there's just been so many things, um, you know, even like when I'm able to give a talk in church, you know, when we first moved here, I gave a talk and be able to talk about these things openly. And I truly, you know, I want to be a catalyst for change within not just church culture, but in the culture of the world and how we talk about addiction, how we talk about pornography and, and sex addictions and all these different things. Um, starting with stop saying I'm an addict. It's BS. It doesn't help you. Just knock it off. That's my one pro tip of the day. It doesn't help. And you're not an addict unless you literally cannot sit through an hour meeting without pulling out your phone to look at porn. You're not an addict. That's not, it's not real. You have addictive behavior that you are not an addict. You don't need to label yourself that way. Um, I want to change a lot of that culture, you know, and I believe the church gotten a lot better over the years. I, sustain and love all of our leaders. They are literal heroes to me. Um, and I love them and I believe they represent the savior at the same time. I still believe, yeah, there's a lot of things in culture that need to change. We need to change how we teach the youth. We need to change how we talk about these things. We need to be more open because 
being quiet about things only opens the door for shame and guilt and for Satan to weave his little lies into our lives and get control. And I don't want Satan to have control in my life or anyone else's life. Um, that's why we're doing this podcast. We want to share our testimonies of the Savior. Um, yeah. It was interesting to me how you're talking about how you just like want to be equally yoked with the Savior. And I feel like a big part of that is being vulnerable. You know, being a literal light an example to people that may be struggling because these things are not easy to talk about. It may be awkward, you know, but I just appreciate you so much because you are so vulnerable and you are so open about it that it's going to help people. And I know it will because I mean, he gave a talk in church and I can't even tell you where he, where he talked about his pornography um, issues. And I can't even tell you how many people came, came up to me and it was just like, I really appreciated that, you know, just being open, especially within religion, but just being open with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, like you never know what people are going through and how you can help them. So like Nate said, that's why we started this podcast is because you are not alone in your struggles. And we wanted to put that light of God and of Christ out into the world that they're real and they're tangible and they want to help. And a lot of times it's through other people and hearing other people's experiences that that need is met. Absolutely. I mean, you're never alone. There are other people who are struggling and we never need to judge each other. We never need to shame each other, but we can't be here for each other unless we're open about our struggles and unless we're real, <laughs> we have yeah. to be real with each other about what's really going on in our lives. And, um, you know, I'm not the best at that. But I have learned. I think you're great with, at it. <laughs> I have learned with my struggles with pornography to be very open. You know, when I was in the throes of it, I was not the best. And I've gotten to a place where I have a very, very healthy relationship with my self-confidence, um, with pornography, with everything, where I feel very confident. And I know when I'm right with the Lord. Um, that You know, when I, when I met with the bishop, when we moved here to Washington, that was kind of my conversation with Bishop. This is who I am. I've had struggles with this. This is my story. I know what I'm good with the Lord. Do you want me to come meet with you every time I have a struggle or are we good? Because I'm at the point where I know, I know when the Lord has forgiven me. And, you know, I also respect my bishop, my local ecclesiastical leader. If he wants me to come and meet with him every time, I absolutely will. Um, but I know when I'm right with the Lord. Um, and that's that's been a, a blessing to, to just have that relationship with it. You know, it's not as big a deal. Kind of in closing, I mean, the whole point of the podcast is why I believe. You know, it's it's a hard question to answer in a single sentence. Why why I believe. On one end, I've always believed. I have always known that Christ was my Savior. I've always believed he was my Savior, that I could come to him. When I really, really repented for the first time and felt him and felt his love embrace me, I knew. It was no longer just belief. It was knowledge. And... I will never forget that feeling. I'll never forget that feeling. I know that the Savior is real. I know that he literally guides the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today. It is his church. And no matter the struggles that may happen in that church, I want to be found in his church. I want to be found with him when he comes again. And he will literally come again because he lives today. 
He died for us. He suffered for us. And he lives again. He was resurrected. I know that. I love the Savior. And I choose to follow him every day because I know him. I choose to follow him every day because I cannot imagine my life without him. The hopelessness I would feel if I did not have the gospel in my life. And that I have felt when I didn't have the gospel in my life. I can't imagine my life without it or without him. And so that's why I believe. Well, Nate, we've loved having you on the podcast. I mean, I guess it's just me. I've loved having you on the podcast. But Nate has such a powerful story. And I hope that, you know, whoever's listening can can feel the love of God through this. And if you have anybody that in your life that may, you know, not be living in alignment with with their value system or may struggle with unwanted pornography use, send them Nate's episode because he's really just so open and and loves to talk about it and how he's he's um made progress in his life. So thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.